0: I want to start this evening with the opening verse of the Dhammapada and the words of the Buddha. Mind is the forerunner of all things. Mind is chief. Speak or act with an impure mind and unhappiness will follow you as the wheel of the cart follows the ox that draws it. Mind is the forerunner of all things. Speak or act with a pure mind And happiness will follow you, like your shadow, unshakable." They're really talking about the preeminence of mind. Mind. (laughs) Ears, hearing, (laughs) consciousness. Mind is important because that's how we shape and understand our world, how we experience the world. But the Buddha also said, within this fathom-long body is everything we need to know to come to awakening. I want to talk tonight about um, the relationship between these two, but particularly focusing on mindfulness of the body, because we often give, um, we'll be talking a lot about the mind, working with attitude, noticing the hindrances and the calaces of greed, aversion, and delusion, but it's through the body that we often know these things, and coming to a wise relationship wise connection, wise understanding of mindfulness of the body is really fundamental to this practice that we're doing here. So it's interesting just to reflect a little about how we got here. And I don't mean means of transport, but really from the very beginning. It was that magical uh, moment where an egg and a sperm united in our mother's wombs the traditional way that this happens. For most of us, it probably happened that way. But nowadays, not always. But some coming together in that form. And so there was this union. But from that union was uh, a, a continual process of separation and individuation. As these cells all uh, found their unique way into becoming whatever part of the body they became. It's a, it's a fascinating process. And then in birth, coming out of the womb into um, existence (coughs) as a, a separate being still attached by the umbilical cord. And then in that separation, we finally become that individual human being in a separate way. But as a baby, we probably don't remember but have seen other babies, they don't know they're separate yet. They have to discover that these are are at my hands and arms and legs. And there's this sort of fascination with the body as they realize that these belong to it. And once they have that discovery, it's then that learning that they can actually use that, use the body to get what they want or push away what they don't want. So it's a whole process of learning how to be in the world as a separate agent, as a being that can act in the world and get response out of the world. But in going through this process, we, we, what we experience and what gets solidifies is this sense of separation. Out of what was more a sense of union and connection, we become more and more separate, create this strong sense of self and other. And out of that, all kinds of experiences arise out of losing that sense of connection. Hamid Ali, um, a teacher that some of us have practiced with, he's not a Buddhist teacher but uh, a great spiritual teacher, says this about this process. Ego is first and foremost a body ego in the sense that the self-demarcation that form our consciousness from infancy are based on our experiences of our bodies as distinct from other objects. The delusion is taking these body boundaries to define and limit our sense of who and what we are. On the physical level, it's true that each of us has physical boundaries and this body is separate from that body. But on the level of consciousness, these bodies are very permeable. The edges of our bodies do not define where we end and others begin. Although if we have this conviction, it will feel this way. And we grow into this conviction of separateness. And out of that, this body becomes who I am. It becomes me. We identify with it. It becomes who we are. And not far along that path, at some certain age, becomes we, we we get self-consciousness, and very easily moves into perhaps a sense of shame, embarrassment about ourselves. You can see this in the the archetype of Adam and Eve, where once they ate from the tree of knowledge, they become ashamed. They became ashamed of their nakedness and had to cover up, and we can see how it's a. It's a a sort of archetype, a myth, and we go through that process ourselves of once we become conscious of this separateness, we learn to hide, we learn often to be ashamed of ourselves, and we start to learn all of these attitudes about bodies, about our body, about others' bodies, and out of these attitudes, we develop relationships, ideas, around these bodies. Some of us take up training the body and really wanting it to be certain, a certain way. Others deny the body and live in ignorance of it. We can value the body or be ashamed of it or abuse it. We, we're, we're always judging and comparing self and other. Some way or another, to some extent or another, we become obsessed with these bodies just think back to teenage years and especially how that manifested so strongly and often very painfully and what's interesting is these attitudes that we learn this sense of self that we have is often not very accurate it's actually quite distorted how many of us don't like what we see in the mirror for many of us we've gotten over that and come to recognize this is this is the way things are, but especially as we were younger, there was this sense of, of not being okay with who we are and what we looked like. And there's the torture chamber of going into changing rooms in department stores with those very bright lights and three-way mirrors where it seemed like every angle was unflattering and the horror that can be the bathing suit season, especially for women, and you know trying to find something that looks good. Now I buy from catalogs, it's much easier. But it's just that sense that we have that we're not okay, that, that we're always comparing ourselves to some ideal, that there is some way we should be. And it's younger or older or thinner or bigger or stronger or more this way and less that way. What we come to realize with a bit of wisdom is how all these ideals are actually fiction. And it's especially true these days. I've read that virtually every image of a body, of a human body in a magazine has been photoshopped, especially in the glamour magazines. I mean, literally every image isn't real. It begins with the lighting and the airbrushing but goes way beyond that where they'll take a beautiful young woman and make her thinner or change her face to fit some ideal and then here we are, especially uh, young people, comparing themselves to that, thinking that's what we should look like. No wonder we get such a distorted idea of who we are and what the body should be like. And it's completely unfair, ungrounded, it's it's so distorted. And so we grow up often having this um, relationship to the body, this image of the body that is confused and doesn't actually match reality, doesn't actually match what's true. There was a great story about this um, by the teacher Larry Rosenberg. He teaches at CIMC just close by here in Cambridge in his book, Living in the Light of of Death, that I've always liked. And this is what he said about this. I am a person who takes very good care of himself. I do yoga most mornings, I take long vigorous walks, I meditate a great deal, and I'm careful about food supplements and the food that I eat. About three years ago, when I was 63, I was on the subway in Boston, coming back from a trip to the dentist. I comfort myself with the thought that I may have looked a little peaked from my dental work. I was standing there holding on to the metal rail when a young woman seated in front of me smiled and stood up and gave me her seat. I didn't realize at first quite what was happening. I thought she was getting off at the next stop. But then that stop went by and the next and I started to realize, wait a minute, a young woman just gave me her seat on the subway. My mind started racing. I wanted to say to her, you've got it all wrong. I get up and give my seat to you. I've been giving up my subway, I've been giving up subway seats all my life. But apparently from her standpoint, this looked appropriate. She was a young, vigorous, healthy woman, and I, it seemed, looked like a man who needed to sit down. <laughs> All my years of doing yoga and eating good food and taking long walks were wasted. I looked my age anyway. Next time it would be, hey, grandpa, how'd you like a seat? Or slow down, old timer, let me help you with those packages. My self-image of myself as a young, youthful, bouncy, older man, an image I didn't even know I had, had been smashed to pieces. This was not a bad experience, it was actually good. A young woman made a courteous gesture and I got to take a load off my feet. It was what I did with it before my awareness returned and I had a good laugh at myself that mattered. It was a modern day rite of passage, initiatory moment that let me know I was in a new category. It shattered my self-image. And so it can happen at any time in any way that we see that this image we've created of ourselves isn't actually true, whether it's that we're younger or older or whatever it is, not thin enough, too thin. I read an article about this uh, online the other day, um, this Dr. Christian Jensen, was a, this is an excerpt from a longer article about body image, and he said, Body image is a term that has come to mean our mind's eye image of our physical experience, appearance in contrast with the outer image as rated by an unbiased observer. Most would think these two correlate substantially, but studies have shown that the overlap, has shown the overlap to be astonishingly low at 5%, 5% correlation between internal experience and unbiased objective observation. It's this body image that is closely related to psychological factors and clinical conditions like eating disorders, depression, and low self-esteem. So for many of us, there can be a real, a lot of suffering around this sense of self. In the extreme cases of things like um, body distortions of anorexia, where even though one is very thin, never thin enough. And there's now apparently another distortion called bigorexia, where it especially happens to young men where they want to be very muscular and they are somewhat built up. They're doing a lot of weightlifting or whatever, and they're not big enough. And there's a real shame and suffering around that and a, and a forcing of, of exercising to, to meet this imagined ideal, so it can happen in many different ways and through whatever variation of this kind of uh, distorted body image, we become disconnected. We don't actually know the reality of the body, we're not in touch, and we have this idea of this body as this separate thing. You probably know that quote from James Joyce, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body, Mm -hmm. many people, live in that way not connected because of all of these forces because of this conditioning and this can have an impact if we bring this attitude into our meditation practice reginald ray a tibetan teacher had an article in the shambhala sun that i found interesting and this is what he said Buddhist meditation as practiced in the West frequently suffers suffers from a profound disembodiment. Often we meditate from the neck up as floating heads completely cut off from the life of our bodies and our physical existence in the world. We meditate in this way because we believe often without realizing it that the ideal meditative state should somehow be devoid of pain, complexity, ambiguity, and physicality. In other words, the full embodiment of our natural human condition. You may object that the Buddha taught a dharma whose goal was to show the way out of suffering. Quite true. But often in our Western practice of Buddhism, we mistake the goal for the path seeing the Buddha's statement of the goal as a a description of how we should go about meditating. Many of us, when we sit down to practice, do so with a longing for quiet and peace. No problem. But then our meditation becomes an exercise in trying to attain such a state. It's here that our problems begin. If we are experienced and skilled enough, Perhaps we have figured out how to meditate so as to remove ourselves from the pain, uncertainty, and groundlessness of our lives and enter into a much more satisfying, unambiguous state of mind that we identify as the meditative state. What could possibly be wrong with this? The problem is that in this approach, we are expressing and strengthening the profound dualism that has afflicted Western culture since at least the early Christian world of St. Paul. The view of meditation as disembodiment involves not only our idea that we meditate to remove ourselves from the dirt and detritus of our habitual mental states, more subtly it is our mental image of an ideal disembodied state that we perhaps unconsciously hold up before ourselves every time we sit down to practice. This may be based on a memory of a state experienced in our practice or with a respected teacher or something we have read or heard. No matter what specific practice we may be using, this mental image, whether conscious or unconscious, is guiding and directing our meditation. It will limit how we are able to engage, and how much we are able to experience. And it will restrict what we are able to see. So I thought that was really interesting, just you know how often these unconscious ideas can permeate through our meditation and affect our ability to connect, our ability to know clearly what's happening. Because of course, what we're doing here, the intention of this practice, is to know our experience directly in this moment as it is and that includes the body as it is right now not some projection of it not through filters or layers or concepts but this direct immediate experience and to come into that knowing in a way we can really trust a way we can really have confidence in Because, as I said in the beginning, the body is our vehicle for awakening. Through the body, we learn so much about our experience. Of course, the mind, again, is chief, as the Dhammapada said. The mind is where awakening happens, it's where insight happens, it's the knowing faculty. Mindfulness is, as Guy described last night the clear knowing of our experience, this knowing with awareness. So mind is, of course, the, the central piece of this. But what we often know is the body. What's making itself known is our experience of this physical sense store. And even the life of the mind expresses itself through the body in the way, of course, emotions sometimes very strongly register in the body, the way the heart feels, the stomach, the vibration, the tension. But as the meditation deepens, you can even see how a thought can express itself in the body, can have an impact. And so our attunement to the body, our connection to the body in this direct way enlivens our awareness of the mind, makes more subtle and more accurate this knowing of the the life of the mind. So our practice is to look directly at the body, to know it in this simple, direct way, and to challenge these assumptions we might have about it of not good enough, not okay, that it's separate, that it's inadequate in some way. And to really see that how we relate to the body can be a source of great suffering, or a source of enormous freedom and that we're making that choice through that relationship. So the body is very important and developing a skillful relationship to it is even more important. As the Reginald Ray quote mentioned, we have a cultural history of denying the body, especially in spiritual practice, in Christianity, you know, practices of asceticism and even flagellation, this really um, rejection of the, of the life of the body. And it's there in Buddhism as well, if you know the story of the Buddha's years of practice before he became enlightened, how he went from living a life of great indulgence as a prince with every luxury Every every pleasure of the senses available to him, to six years of intense practice, many of which were intense ascetic practices, and they were very common at the time. The theory was, if you denied the body enough, it would allow the spirit to become free. And so he never he didn't bathe, he didn't eat, um, you know. There was practices of not even wearing clothes, not not. Um, lying on beds, all these sorts of practices about how you would take food, and then not even taking food. It got down, he said, to one grain of rice a week. And there are many, many statues you can see of, they call it the emaciated Buddha. It's basically a skeleton. He was a walking skeleton. And he would say things like, if I pressed my belly, I could feel my, my um, spine. And his, this, his spine stood out like a row of beads. At some point, he realized that that wasn't the way. That, you know, he, he had gone as far as anyone could go with those practices and haven't, hadn't found what he was looking for. And the story goes he remembered a time um, when he was a young boy and his fa- he was out in the fields with his father sitting under a rose apple tree, and he spontaneously went into a state of absorption, great peace and ease. And he remembered that the pleasure of that, and the purity of that, and said, maybe that's the way, but realized he he needed strength to do that. So he took a bowl of milk rice from a young girl who offered it to him, and with that gained the energy to practice that led to his full awakening. And from that, he developed this path that we practice still today, which he called the middle path, not the path of asceticism and denial, but not indulgence and um, heedlessness his version of the middle path might seem very austere to us today um, but he recognized that people needed adequate food shelter clothing and medicine to be able to practice and made sure that his monks and nuns had that that their vows included uh, accessibility to that so really important to remember that in our tradition that that it is about having those needs met, having the body be as comfortable as we can make it, not excessively, but to um, tend to the body so that practice can deepen. As I said, what he viewed as the middle way, which was you know one meal a day and two robes and a bowl, for us would be spartan if not austere, but in the, the uh, um ideas of the day, he, it was a middle way. And when he went to see his fellow ascetics after his enlightenment, at first they turned away to him from him and said, Oh, Siddhartha Gautama has fallen off the way. You know, he's become indulgent. Look at him, he's fat and, and overfed. And then they realized that something amazing had happened. So we tend to this body. We we recognize the the necessity of having a body that can be this vehicle for awakening and when we turn and look directly at the body we see how amazing it is everything that it does without our knowing anything about it I mean imagine if you were actually in charge of the body and had to decide how much insulin to release or what balance of hormones should be available or how to repair an injury We wouldn't be here, would we, if we were in charge in that way? But the body knows how to do that. it's, It's an amazing miracle. And knowing the body very intimately has been a fundamental practice in this tradition from the very beginning. It begins with the first foundation of mindfulness in the Satipatthana Sutta that Joseph introduced the very beginning of this morning, knowing the body through the breath and even in the breath knowing the expanding the breath to include awareness of the whole body and then the next part goes on to knowing the body in its elemental nature in in the time of the buddha that was considered the four great elements of earth air fire and water so just seeing the body as this manifestation of elements Then the body in action in all of the different ways we are throughout the day of of sitting and standing and walking and talking and keeping quiet and bathing and going to the bathroom, knowing the body in all of these ways. And then even a further level of detail, the practice of the 32 parts of the body that's included in the Satipatthana Sutta, where there's this training to Uh, have this level of insight in the body that we know it in in all of its different manifestations you start with head hair and body hair and nails and skin and teeth and move on to blood and pus and phlegm and the stomach and the lungs and the brain and muscle and bone i actually was really curious about this practice of the 32 parts of the body because it's very central and yet it's not taught much these days so I did a self-retreat where I undertook it myself, just to um, learn a little bit how it was. And you know, I only did a couple of weeks, so I can't say I got very far, but it was quite a powerful experience, quite interesting. In, this, in the section in the suttas, or when the, the, um, the Buddha talks about this practice in the text, it's called an asubha practice. And subha means beautiful, The A before it just usually means not. So it literally means not beautiful. But a lot of the original translations of the texts and a certain viewpoint about these practices often translated it as loathsome or disgusting. And you read that and you go here's, we're talking about the body and it's loathsome or disgusting. And many of us have, understandably, a reaction to that because you know we want to relate to the body. And we're told it's a vehicle for awakening. How can we also relate to it as loathsome or disgusting? I actually think it's a, a, a mistranslation. And not beautiful or unattractive is a, a, a more appropriate way to look at it. And when I did the practice, it certainly wasn't loathsome or disgusting. It was fascinating. And as I came to appreciate, as I said, this miracle of the body and really feel into these different parts and, and the, what, you know, I didn't even know what some of them did, but just as having this relationship and this attention hour after hour on the body, what developed was appreciation and equanimity. Appreciation for the miracle of the body and this equanimity of the universal nature of the body that my liver is not that different from your liver or spleen or bones. Sure, there's some outward manifestation, but in their essential nature, there's just these parts coming together and forming our experience. And so it actually uh, cultivated a deep sense of interconnectedness for me, not a sense of pushing away or aversion, very helpful practice. But there has been a, a, a common belief and a, even a, a lot of teaching about the body being loathsome or disgusting, that this is a typical Theravada understanding. But Thanissaro Bhikkhu, who's one of the foremost translators of our era, he's an American monk who lives in San Diego and doing a lot of translations on things like the website Access to Insight, doing a lot of publications, had this to say. Although early Buddhism is widely believed to take a negative attitude towards the body, the texts of the Pali Canon do not support this belief. They approach the body both in its positive role as an object of meditation to develop mindfulness, concentration, and the mental powers based on concentration and in its negative role as an object for unskillful states of mind. Even in its negative role, the body is not the culprit. The problem is the mind's attachment to the body. Once the body can be used in its positive role to develop mindfulness and concentration, those mental qualities can be used to free the mind of its attachment to the body. Then, as many a modern meditation master has noted, the mind and body can live in peace. So it's really more about looking at our relationship to the body. The body in and of itself is just what it is. It's a miracle and it is just what it is. It's how we relate to it. As I said earlier, it can be a source of great freedom or a source of suffering and attachment of obsession, even. But so the Buddha recommends again and again that we become aware of the body. Awareness, again and again, he talked about cultivating awareness of all, in all four postures, sitting, walking, standing, and lying down. We can tend to give preeminence to the sitting. That's where the serious meditation is. You know, we come in here and close our eyes and perhaps grit our teeth and huff and puff a bit. And this is, this is where the serious meditation happens. And walking, we kind of do a little as a break or, you know, every now and then we get into it, but not so much. And standing, hardly ever. Lying down, nap time, or time to go to bed. He asked us to be mindful in all four postures. So really to take that to heart as you begin your practice for these weeks together, that there is something profound about this continuity of mindfulness and learning to be engaged in the body in all four postures. In the walking meditation, to really find a way to make that come alive for you. What is it that gets you interested in walking? and we'll talk more about that as we do the instructions day by day, but not to have some rote idea of what walking meditation looks like, because that can just be deadly, boring, and unalive. But if we go to each walking period with a sense of curiosity about how do we connect right now to this body, what is it like to have a body that's moving through space, all of these muscles and bones acting in the way that they are, then we can get interested in standing meditation. Hopefully we'll have a time when we do a a formal practice in here of standing, but to really see that as a great, um, has a great place in practice. If you're sleepy, the body's really uh, resistant to the sitting posture, just stand. Great practice to do short periods or longer periods, and lying down. Utejaniya, one of our teachers, says that everyone should do one period of lying down meditation a day. So you learn what it's like to be mindful as you're relaxed. Do it at a time when you won't fall asleep, you know, don't try doing it at two o'clock after lunch, but at a time when you're quite awake, what's it like to be mindful while you're lying down? So we get this sense of a fullness of practice, Buddha emphasized this again and again and again. And as we do this, we use our mindfulness, this knowing with awareness, to experience what's happening in this direct, immediate way, without filters, without a lot of projection, seeing through the, the, the ideas we have ab- about the body. And what is it we see? If we close our eyes or we just turn our attention inward, what is it we actually know? We have such a strong sense of my body, my arm, my hand. But what we actually experience is pressure, lightness, coolness, warmth, tightness, tingling, softness over and over again in this changing array of experiences out of that we create this sense of my body that then is my back is aching or my knee is hurting but looking more directly at that it's just this simple expression of the elemental nature and again when it's my knee is aching suffering when is tightness pressure there's the possibility of equanimity of even freedom in that moment all in how we relate to it so what does the Buddha say about how we should relate to the body again in the Satipatthana Sutta he says here bhikkhus and the word bhikkhu just means practitioner serious practitioner so in this sense we're all bhikkhus here Here, bhikkhus, a bhikkhu lives contemplating the body in the body, the body in the body, ardent, clearly comprehending it and mindful of it, having overcome covetousness and grief for the world. So there's a lot in that sentence, contemplating the body in the body, not the idea of the body or my body or or, um, an image of the body, but in the body, in the felt sense of the body, ardent, ardency means being interested, curious, having a sense of, of um, aliveness in our awareness, clearly comprehending it, seeing it as it is and mindful of it. And this last line, having overcome covetousness and grief for the world. I was think if we'd gotten that, we wouldn't be needing to be practiced very much. But it's really just an attitude of implying that, you know, we're really turning our attention to this practice and letting go a little bit of our entanglement with our worldly um, habits. It goes on to say a little later, the practitioner abides independent, not clinging to anything in this world, so abides independent. And then, in many other suttas, talks about seeing the aggregates, the khandas. these five uh, views of the, the, the things that make up our human experience of form, the, the bodily form, feeling, vedana, this pleasant, unpleasant, um, perception, this naming, recognition of the different aspects of our experience, sankara, all of the mental, formations of the mind and consciousness. Guy might talk about this a little later, but basically all of the aspects of our human experience, but particularly the body. He says, you look at all of these and you know, you recognize this is not me, not mine, not who I am. Again and again, relating to the body, it's not me. The body is not, does not limit or define me. It isn't who I am, it's not, it's not mine. I don't own the body in the way we generally think of that. So what does that mean? How do we relate to and care for the body if we're seeing it in this kind of impersonal way? Well, we, It's hard to relate to the body when we're in a struggle with it or not connected to it. So we have to be in, in the body, Connected to the body, but we also need to use our mindfulness to care for the body It doesn't mean we distance it in a way and objectify it as something not of our concern We can actually use mindfulness to care for the body There's a a, many people have a belief that mindfulness itself has a healing quality to it And I don't mean that will cure you of things that are seriously wrong. But just this tending to the body, and you've probably all had this experience of the the relieving of, of tension, of aches, of pains, of even forms of illness, just through tending to the body with mindfulness, with acceptance. Many of you probably know the work of John Kabat-Zinn, who practiced in this uh, tradition, has sat many times here at IMS. and. Felt, uh, founded what he calls mindfulness-based stress reduction and was asked to create a, pa- a pain clinic at the Massachusetts, I'm not sure where, it is, Massachusetts Medical Clinic or Hospital somewhere in Massachusetts, where he was sent all of the people that the hospital could no longer help. They had chronic pain, chronic illness, and the pain medication wasn't working. And he took these people and trained them in basically mindfulness meditation, especially using the scanning approach of meditation, where you move the attention regularly, uh, systematically through the body, usually lying down, and had amazing success with that. of Really reducing or allowing people to cope with, open to a level of pain that previously they couldn't deal with. So this is possible. And we can do that here. But of course, that's not our objective, working with pain and getting rid of pain. Our objective here is to awaken, is to come to freedom. So we need to find this wise balance in using our mindfulness to just soften and relax and make the body comfortable, and mindfulness to actually bring the aliveness, the inquiry, the investigation that awakens us. Now, in the beginning of a long retreat, it's really understandable that there'll be discomfort in the body. It's almost inevitable, very rare, that you wouldn't have any, and even rare that you wouldn't have quite a lot. Just getting used to this schedule, I mean, our normal day isn't made up of eight hours of sitting, sitting still on a cushion or in a chair. So the body needs time to get used used to that. It's really important to take it slowly, to not stress the body. Think of this as a marathon, not a sprint. That's why we took that day to kind of settle in and really encourage you to do that in your process here, not to force the body into to more than it's ready for. So really some kindness about that, you know, to, to, to take food that nourishes the body, the right kind of food, it's great food that's offered here to do some stretching or yoga so that the body um, is, is supple and able to maintain these postures, to get adequate rest. You know, and it, many of you will be have a lot of sleepiness in these first days of the retreat. It's not about pushing through that. It's really what do I need to do so that when I do come to sit, there's a level of wakefulness and an a, and a interest in sitting. It's not a torture chamber coming in here. So we take care of the body. And for many of us, learning to be kind to ourselves physically and emotionally is a big part of being on a retreat. So often we've been trained or have the idea that we should push through things. There's some agenda we've got to fulfill, some place we've got to get to. So it's always finding this balance. We need to put in effort, of course, and have that sense of continuity but learning how to do that in a relaxed and balanced way so that we can make continuous effort. Otherwise it's it's usually that, that heightened effort, really striving and then crash and burn and then we pick ourselves up and push again. How to find and modulate our effort so that it can be continuous in a really graceful way. So we of course need to learn how to work with pain. Many of you have meditated for years and are familiar with practice, but just to give a few of the guidelines about this. It's often that the body only makes itself known when it's in pain, when it's uncomfortable. When it's fine, we don't pay much attention to it. We expect it to do what we want it to do. And it's only when it starts knocking at the door with aches and pains that we realize We have to pay attention to it. And a good sitting is one where we don't have any pain. It's much more pleasant, and that's what we look for. And it's very easy to see pain as an obstacle. And if only I could get rid of this pain, then I could meditate. I see it in myself still after all these years of wanting to get comfortable, then I can meditate. Instead of recognizing what a teacher pain can be and how concentrating it can be it's not to deny that it's easier to sit and to sit comfortably without pain and to have good you know again we don't like to use a good sitting a good sitting is one where we're interested and engaged and inquiring and and connected but pay, to recognize what a learning there can be when there is difficulty in the body of course difficulty in the mind too but I'll talk more about difficulty in the body. We need to recognize that we can uh, honor that, take care of that, but that it doesn't run the show. That we don't have to be on uh, a knee jerk reaction to pain of get me out of here, because our first instinct always is, of course, to move. And here in meditation, meant to be sitting calmly and quietly, it's often we don't feel we can, but just to to look and see that instinctual reaction to move away from pain. And for me, it's even more interesting to see it on the subtle levels as it happens throughout the day, that virtually every movement we make is some movement away from discomfort. Might not be as strong as pain, but some modulating of our experience. Once you start to track it, it becomes kind of interesting to see how we're, like in the pinball machine, It's moving away from pain, adjusting, accommodating, avoiding. And this practice is to actually look a little more closely at what's happening, to get curious about this reaction in the mind and what's actually happening in the body and to see if there can be a degree of acceptance, even equanimity, curiosity about this experience and changing our relationship to it. Because of course at some point, sooner or later, perhaps even now for some of you, there'll be a pain that won't go away, a pain that's chronic, a pain that's permanent in some way. How do we relate to this? It's always a good question to ask as you're dealing with some discomfort and you kind of think, I'm okay with this. There's a little, not really acknowledging the gritted teeth around it. To ask the question, would I be okay if this never went away? If this stayed the same? That really challenges our equanimity. But that's a kind of willingness of acceptance that we need to bring. Pema Chodron, that great Tibetan teacher, says, practice is learning to stay. Just learning to stay, to be with experience. Of course, there's no need to create pain. You know, it's not about sitting uncomfortably and and you know, not having a cushion or whatever you might need to, to help your body. Um, we need to find a comfortable sitting posture. And I really encourage you uh, to experiment a little, um, to try different forms of cushions and benches and chairs, or to alternate. We're well, lucky enough there's space in the hall to sit in different ways so that we can actually have the body feel at ease most of the time. But sometimes we do need that determination that just says, I'm going to sit with this. Where, where, what, what, can, what can I learn about this? What, what, what understanding, acceptance can I bring to this? When my first retreat was with S. N. Goenka, many of you have sat with him. Very powerful, strong teacher who not many days into the retreat had us do what he called vow hours, where for an hour you were not to basically move a muscle, not change the position of your hands, not roll your shoulders, not move your legs, just sit. It was torture. And I can just remember sitting there, waiting for the, he would click the microphone before he would announce the end of the sitting, just leaning, waiting for that click that was, and then, you know, often find, oh, not so bad. could sit for a little longer. Okay. I, but, and I said, it was torture. But I learned I could do it. I could sit through it. Not something I recommend or even that I do all the time, but just sometimes knowing that you can. We, we need to sometimes challenge those limitations we have on ourselves. Often, it's not even so much pain as restlessness. And Shada's going to talk about this a little bit more in a night or two. But it's a strong um, force in the mind where we just say to ourselves, can't bear this another moment. And this energy just forces us into movement. And just to look and see, can I bear it another moment? Can I be with this just this one more moment and then see what happens? And of course, that's talking a lot about painful experiences. We often forget that we relate in a very similar way to pleasant experiences. Of course, though, instead of pushing away, we're holding on. We're clutching at them, like, how did I put this together? It was like it was this time of day, and I sat on this cushion, and I was wearing this sweater, and I held my head a little like that, and, you know, maybe if I put it all together again, it'll happen. In the same way, we try to hold on to the pleasant experiences. And if we have them, then the idea comes, oh, this is it. Uh, This is how it should be. This is good meditation. And then, of course, what happens? We get frustrated, disappointed, because it doesn't happen. It's impermanent, just like the difficulty is, the pain is. So we really need to see, even as we can appreciate, when there's pleasantness in the body, ease in the mind. Of course that's lovely, beautiful, but we can't hold on to it. That's just going to be another source of suffering, because that, in and of itself, isn't a lasting source of happiness. It's impermanent like every conditioned experience there is. So we, we cultivate over these weeks of practice this skillful relationship to the body where we, we, we tend to the body, we recognize the value of having a human body, how precious that is. We wouldn't be here, obviously, if we didn't have this human body. That we're healthy enough to come here and practice, whatever limitations we may have, healthy enough, able enough to come here and practice. And so we appreciate the body, we tend to it, we care for it, we use our mindfulness to find ways to be kind to the body, to relax the body, to open the body, to investigate the body. But we don't identify, we don't hold on, we don't have this view. We see the suffering around having this view that I am the body, or this is my body, or I control the body, because it's not true. We see again and again that that's not true. We experience the body in its elemental nature as the product of all these causes and conditions that have brought us to this moment and we sit, we stay with that. We learn how to relate, respond skillfully to that. And so from that relationship, the body becomes alive. The body becomes, as some uh, teacher said, this wondrous cave with uh, all sorts of experiences to awaken us. That we, we experience the vitality of the body And through this body, in this body, we can awaken. This is possible for all of us. So I want to end, as I began with the words of the Dhammapada. Simply talking a lot doesn't maintain the Dhamma. Whoever, although she's heard next to nothing, sees Dhamma through her body is not heedless of Dhamma, she's one who maintains the Dhamma. So let's just sit for a moment together. Whoever, although she's heard next to nothing, sees Dhamma through her body, is not heedless of Dhamma. She's one who maintains the Dhamma.